All right, so we have been going through a, uh, this will be week 14 of our adventure together. In the to- on the topic of confidence in Christ, and there's actually a 16-week study, um, the, the, the printed ones that we've got in the back, because it was actually designed for a, a small group study. So there's a lot more space in that to discuss issues and kind of mull things over, which doesn't obviously happen um, in this sermon setting or in this, you know, kind of expository setting, but <clears throat> we're going to now go over 14 weeks of what I regard as meaty study. For the most part, we almost exclusively teach verse by verse out of the Bible because, again, we're very deeply convicted that the Word of God is what is alive and active, what is powerful to uh, transform us. And and when we teach topically, there's always the risk that you're getting the pastor's perspective, right? The pastor's favorite themes, the pastor's favorite verses, or something like that. Whereas when we go through verse by verse, uh, we're not able to hide. Um, So next week, we will begin our study in Ruth. And I'm very excited about that, verse by verse through Ruth. And we're going to learn about Naomi and Boaz and all that fun stuff. Very, very exciting. Um, But... <clears throat> this, these moments where we take a break and look at some things topically are also rather important because they give us the ability to take a step back and say, now that I've understood all these passages, how do they fit together? And so today we're going to look at, and for those of us who are, uh, have not been a part of the study uh, the whole time, my apologies, we're going to be covering tons of ground. So I guess everything will be sort of a, a callback to a previous, if you're, if you're uh, hear a comedian talk about a callback calling back to an earlier joke like they tell a joke at the beginning and then they come back around and tell that joke or, or work on that joke again at the end it's kind of like that we're going to be doing a callback to the entire series so our series opened and we first talked about self-confidence and what it means to try to find confidence in our own works, our own actions, in our own being, in our own flesh. And we saw that any kind of attempt to find confidence in ourselves only left us with either self-deception, right? Deceiving ourselves into thinking that we should be confident in our own abilities and gifts and so on and so forth, um, or leaving us in despair, Deception or despair are the two options. And so now we saw that we're left with three reasons for self-confidence. Um, and it was this was tongue-in-cheek, of course, at the time we went through it. These are actually three reasons why we should never be self-confident. And the first one was Genesis 3, 1 through 7. This, of course, records the fall of man. And we see both Adam and Eve are approached by uh, the serpent. And they are... Um, willing to entertain the possibility that maybe God's word is false, that maybe God's promise isn't true, and that maybe God is holding out on them. And so they disobey God under the influence of the serpent or under the inspiration of the serpent. And what went wrong, he promised them that they would be as gods. And so what we saw when we looked at Genesis 3, 1 through 7, that they put their confidence in themselves right? They put their confidence in their ability to function as God. They, uh, they, in so doing, changed everything. That was when everything that is negative in this world came into this world, if you can believe it or not. It's an amazing thing to think that prior to that moment, there was no death, no decay, nothing fell apart, nothing uh, was ruined. Relationships would not um, experience the kind of damage and abuse slavery, all the other horrible things of this world uh, were introduced because Adam and Eve trusted in themselves over trusting in God and his word. 
And hopefully we read that and we say, okay, so from the very beginning, the first thing that man, that humanity did wrong was place our confidence, not in God, but in ourselves. And that is just as destructive today personally for us as it would be for, uh, it was for them. Then, Isaiah 53, 6, in fact, all of Isaiah, right? But Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own, own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So we all like sheep did what? Say it loud. We went astray. We, all of us, can you imagine? I mean, what kind of a picture that shows? Like you got a shepherd walking along with his flock and all of a sudden he like drops his staff and he has to go pick up his staff. Everybody's gone. Oh my goodness, the whole flock shot off in different directions. And interestingly, it doesn't say that we all went to another way, but it's rather that we all went to our own way. In other words, we all followed what was right in our own eyes. Again, putting confidence in our own perception, our own uh, worldview and all that. And what, so that's what we all did. And what it should show is that we, sh we don't even have confidence outside of the Lord's leading, the Lord's guiding, and the Lord's word to choose a good way. We're going to wind up going our own way, and while that might look advantageous for a short time, it's always going to bring us back to that same place of disappointment, of failure, of sin, of, of falling short of God's goodness. Romans 3, 9 through 18, again, and just in summary, we are all shut up under sin. Whether we are self-righteous, whether we follow rules, or whether we're absolutely debase uh, worldlings, we are all shut up. We're all in the same situation uh, under sin. And that should bring us a total lack of confidence. So the goal of our first session was really just to remind us that anytime we're trying to find confidence in ourselves, we're always going to be left wanting or somehow failing, falling short of that desire. It wasn't a particularly uplifting message, but a very important one because that's generally where we're going to tend to naturally try to find confidence and find confidence for living is in our own talents, skills, and abilities. Well, the next thing we looked at is how perfectly clear the Bible makes it that the only one worthy of our trust at any time is God. Right? So this is one of dozens of great charts that talk about the attributes of the character of God. We're not going to go through these specifically, although we did go through quite a handful of them. But we find that God is always trustworthy or worthy of our confidence because he is immutable. That means that he is unchanging in his character because he's omniscient and omnipresent. That is to say, because he knows all things and because he is all-powerful, omnipotent, and because he knows what's going on everywhere, that his promises can never be abrogated. I mean, I, in fact, it just happened tonight. Uh, Arya said, can we spend tonight's study in the nursery playing? And I said, yes, because I wasn't thinking I was trying to get things ready. And then April said, well, actually, the reality is, is I already told them they couldn't. So I was speaking based on what I understood, but I was not omniscient, omnipotent. I didn't know what, what mommy had already laid down the law on this, and so that, that ruling stands, right? The point is that doesn't ever happen to God. Circumstances never work out such that he is surprised or his will is thwarted or that he, what he uh, truly uh, decrees doesn't come to pass. So because of who he is, the Bible makes it clear that the only reliable place to have confidence or to place our trust or confidence is in God. 
right? Fear is assessment, right? But that leaves us with the greatest problem of all, at least if we only had as much information as we have. We have the information that we have fallen, we've goofed up, and we cannot put confidence in ourselves. We can only put confidence in God, but all that we can earn before him is his wrath. So all that we can be confident in is that the righteous, just, uh, all-powerful God will hold us in sin and judgment. And that's when we turned the corner to answer the next important question, that since God is our only reasonable object of confidence and all other objects fall short, that we must find confidence at the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ is absolutely the only place in which any fallen man, woman, or child can find and live confidently about what's going on now and about the future that is ahead. If we don't understand what it is and what happened at the cross of Jesus Christ, then there is absolutely no hope of our living confidently going forward. Confidence is a natural result of that. So when we looked at confidence in the cross, we looked at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I'll have you turn there just uh, so you've got it under your eyes. But uh, in simple outline, this wonderful passage gives us a picture, a wide picture of the gospel. It says, starting with 2, 1 through 3, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So this shows us our position before our Christ. That is our position before we trusted in Christ. Sorry. And there's a real important reason for this is that Paul had just got through telling them and we'll look at this too tonight, about their position in Christ now and about how they're, they're forgiven and they're a part of the eternal plan of God and they're saved and safe eternally and how they're sealed by the Holy Spirit and filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit and about how God is using all the power which he used in the resurrection of Jesus Christ toward the believer 24 hours a day, all the time. And he says, wait, before you get too big-headed, don't forget, apart from Christ, We were just as dead in our trespasses and sins, just as separated from the life and the love of God as everybody else. We were just as much slaves to the course of this world and to the prince of the power of the air. We were just as much slaves to sin as everybody else. So uh, Paul, thankfully here, is reminding us, his original readers, but us as well, of our humility and our uh, humble position before God and prepares us for the big uh, but in God's word. It says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So here we have us in our helplessness and God steps in, in his riches. Plutus is the idea of, of absolute wealth, of abundance, of mercy, that God, while he is uh, righteous and just, 
and holy is also rich in, he's abundant in mercy, the desire to spare us from the just punishment for our actions and for our sins. And so even when we're dead in trespasses, he makes us alive together with Jesus Christ and raises us together and makes us sit in the heavenly places. We'll revisit this theme later. In the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in Jesus Christ. God was the actor. Again, we saw that there's no reason to have confidence in ourselves and every reason to have confidence in God, and that's why the gospel makes so much sense. Because we are having confidence in the only one in whom it is logical or reasonable to have any confidence. If if salvation were meant to be 95% God and 5% of us, then we would blow it. 99.9% God and 0.1% us, we would still blow it. But because it is entirely, our salvation is entirely a work of God, we can be confident in that salvation and thus receive it as 8 through 9 follows. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Um, So 8 and 9 tell us that it is by God's grace, God's free, no uh, strings attached gift, that you have been saved. This is a very important construction in Greek because it's a perfect paraphrastic. And what that means in terms of English is that as it's kind of translated here, you have been saved. That's a perfect tense. But the sense is, is that it has past tense implications, present tense implications, and eternal future implications. It's true and it's going to be true forever. You have absolutely been saved. And it is the gift of God, it says, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, by faith. So we see that we receive that gift through faith. And here it says, that not of yourselves. And the that in the Greek is referring back because it shares a gender, not with faith and not with grace, but shares, uh, shares gender, this little pronoun, with the salvation. So it's not saying that faith is the gift. It's saying that salvation is the gift of God. It comes entirely from God and received entirely by our choice to trust in him. And that is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone can boast. And so that's how we receive it. Receive it by faith. And faith is never a work, right? When someone gives you something, you never take credit for receiving it. That's absurdist. If a beggar by the street holds his hands out, as Samuel pointed out not too many uh, weeks ago, the beggar holds his hands out to receive something and someone gives him something, that is to the, to the glory of, or you might say, to the credit of the person giving it. But the person who received it, trusting that it was real money, gets no credit in that. That's no work at all, right? It's absolutely by faith, by trusting in God that we receive that. And Ephesians 2.10 tells us what that looks like, sorry. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And uh, at the time we looked at the reality that here poema is the word. Workmanship here means you are God's masterpiece. It specifically means an artwork. So we can think of workmanship as like a good craftsman doing his job. But the particular uh, cultural picture behind this is that you are God's masterpiece. You are God's sculpture. You're God's symphony. You're God's poem, right? That God uh, worked and uh, made by his own 
skill, through his own power, to his own credit, created in Christ Jesus through good, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is by no means some sort of deterministic thing that, oh, well, the God's got 15 good works for you to do today. But far different than that, the reality that Christ was going to come and prepare this salvation for us was known from eternity past, and it was decreed beforehand that anyone who walks in Christ will exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, the character of Christ in your life. So these good works that were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them aren't necessarily specific acts, but it's the life of Christ in the believer. And that is what helps us live, or that's what enables us, not helps us, that's what enables us to live in confidence. Confidence, confident living, true confident living, not false confidence, true confident living starts at the cross every single day. There's not one day that a believer will rise up and live correctly if we're not rightly oriented to the cross. Now, I'm not saying that we need to believe again every day for salvation, because once we've trusted in Christ, it's clear that we're born again. We're a new creature. We've received eternal life. That's not, uh, you know, a plug it in, take, it, take it, plug the plug out situation. That's on and going on eternally. You're a part of the eternal plan of God at that point. However, we need to live in constant reminder of the power and the work of the cross or mindfulness of the power and the work of the cross. That's why it's so beneficial that we continually circle back to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and circle back to the gospel. It's not only because we might have an unsaved person here that needs to hear that or listening online, although that's beneficial and possible. It's not only because I want you to know the gospel so well that you can share it confidently when the opportunity arises, although that's also beneficial, but it is because it is on the basis of the person and work in the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we approach God every single day. And whether or not you have a good day or a bad day or a good three years or a bad ten years, you will never approach God on the basis of your own merits. You will always, we will always be approaching God on the basis of Christ's work. And in that way, we live with confidence. You see, the cross secures our past. It is there that we're justified. It is there that we're declared righteous before the living God. The cross secures our present. We remain secure because of that completed work in the past by our Lord Jesus Christ. And the cross secures our future where we will be with Christ forever. And that can happen without any uncertainty, with absolute security and certainty that uh, that, that the Lord will keep true to his promise because of the blood of Christ, because of the working of Christ, the cross. So we saw that confident living has to begin at the cross. And then we started to talk about our new position in Christ. And so we saw there's some um, absurd number of times in Scripture I, I, I don't have. I've never been able to ascertain a clear count. And the reason is, is that every time you think you've counted them all, another five show up. But in Christ, united with Christ, in the beloved, um, with him, and all these other identification statements are common in Scripture. And we'll, we'll look at some of them, uh, not the least of which being uh, Ephesians 1, 3. Saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Where? In Christ. Right? 
in Christ. It is our position in Christ. And so we use the illustration, uh, stolen from Watchman Nee, the great Chinese theologian, pastor, of a piece of paper put into a book. Once you put that piece of paper in the book, that book is now, or that paper is now identified with the book. If I mail the book to Europe, then the book paper goes to Europe. If I burn the book, then the paper will burn. If I throw the book in the water, the paper will get wet. The identity and the destiny of the paper is now entirely enclosed in the destiny and identity of the book. And you are placed, if you're a believer today, in Jesus Christ. And thus, you share his destiny. Whatever goes on, whatever happens in your life, that destiny is assured. And when God looks at you, just as we look at the book, when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness, the life, the plan of Jesus Christ. He looks and no longer sees your history. He sees the history of Jesus Christ. And so we saw that we are united with Christ in his death in his, uh, on the cross, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in his seating, right? Romans 6 and Ephesians 2 cover all those elements. Romans 6, 1 through 11 specifically. And Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 cover all those elements of how we're identified with Christ in these five critical steps. And so we see that when we were crucified with Christ, that we were now dead to something new. Prior to that, we were dead to God and thus couldn't live with confidence. Now we are dead to our sin nature. Does that mean that we lose our sin nature? Oh no, <laughs> tragically. But we are separated from our sin nature and never again need to obey our sin nature from that point forward. Prior to that, prior to knowing Christ, we were dead to God and alive to the world and alive to the sin nature, and thus we were slaves to the sin nature. We might do something that seems very good. We might do something that seems very wicked from the worldly perspective, but it didn't matter because either way, we were slaves to our sin nature, and now we are dead to our sin nature. The believer in Christ never needs to sin again. Now, will we fail? Absolutely. Scripture is clear. We'll still fail. We'll still fall short. We'll still have lapses in, uh, in judgment and failure. But ultimately speaking, there is never a Christian who had to sin. Or as Paul would say, you've not been tempted beyond your ability to bear, right? That's what he's talking about. He's saying that God will never allow you to be tempted beyond the point where you need to sin. You might be tempted even unto death, but you will never be tempted to the point where you're forced uh, to sin because you're dead, you're freed from your sin nature. Romans 6.11 makes this clear. He says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a great verse to put in your memory. He's saying, after describing our identification with Christ, our baptism, right, not water baptism, our identification into Christ's death and burial and resurrection, he's saying, count that as true. You know it's true spiritually, so now count on it. And when your sin nature tries to take your attention or hijack your, your thinking and your choice making and the like and tries to distract you from Christ, don't let it. Count yourself dead to sin. Hopefully you haven't had to very frequently in your real relationships, but we know what it's like to call yourself dead to someone, right? Like I've got a, a funky, fun feature on my phone that if someone calls me and then all of a sudden it's, hi, we'd like to talk to you about your car's warranty. Your extended warranty's about to run out. I'm like, ah, and I've got a button that I can push to block this caller. You're dead to me. You can call me no more. 
You can try, but I won't pick up. I'll never listen to you. <laughs> That's what it is. Count yourself dead to your sin nature. When your sin nature pops up and crawls up, you can say, no, I'm dead to you. I'm dead to that, that life. The lies, the deception, the slavery. We're dead to the principle of law. Romans 7, 6 tells us, whoop, here we go, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Paul is trying to explain to the believers there that, uh, that you are now brought into this new kind of life, this new creation life. You are now meant to live walking by means of the spirit, and so you're separated from, you're separated from the old systems, man-made systems, or even God-given systems of do's and don'ts for spirituality. Now you're on a different plane, you're on a different track, and that is Christ's life in you, this newness of the Spirit, which we'll talk about coming up. You're separated from the law, as is pointed out um, in Galatians 2.19, for through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. Think about that. You're dead to the law. You're separated from the principle and the idea of law as a way of managing your relationship with God. Now we manage our relationship with God relationally. As we keep our eyes fixed on Him, as we grow in Him, we will see the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness coming forth, and we will experience an increasing degree of what is already true of us, and that is our total freedom from sin, from all the you know, sinless that you could ever deign to imagine. But that, not just that, we're also dead to the world system. And boy, this one's tough to shake these days, isn't it? The world system's been a big part of our lives lately, I think, increased through the crisis and uh, tragedy and difficulty of the coronavirus and all the political nonsense going on, right? The world seems like it's coming in louder than it's ever been before. And you can look at all that noise and say, I'm dead to that. Separated from that, the destiny and the concerns and the cares and the pressures of this world are not are no longer uh, primary in my life. We have to live here, absolutely, but the world and its uh, deception is no longer something that we ever need to worry about. We're free, so we can live with confidence. We find we're seated with Christ, and we already read Ephesians two four through seven. But again, we are now alive together with Christ by grace. You're saved, gra uh, raised up together. The idea is as here that we're raised up from the dead. When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, you were raised with him. When you were uh, when he was seated in heaven, when he was ascended into heaven and uh, taken up in the Shekinah glory to be translated into the heavenly scene. Spiritually speaking, you and I were there with him. We are right now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That is the spiritual reality that underlies everything that we see and do. And so what we saw here is that we have a heavenly position in Christ that is secure and that cannot be moved and cannot be shattered and cannot be changed. You are in heaven with Christ. Your life, as Colossians 3 tells us, is hid with Christ, or sorry, with God in Christ. It's hid away. And nothing in this world can access it or take it away. And so we can live in confidence because of our eternal, permanent, safe, and saved position in Jesus Christ.
But what about our day-to-day condition? What about what goes on here? We know we're not perfect yet, and even Paul himself says, I have not yet attained it, right? He didn't consider himself to be perfect, and he was Paul. I mean, if we ever had a a Christian like Superman, if we had a mascot, if we had someone, it would be Paul, right? And even he comes to the end of his life recognizing himself to have been the greatest of all sinners. So he is recognizing that even um, throughout Paul's earthly life, which if there was ever a supercharged Christian life, it's Paul. Even he was in a, on a growth process. And so that's where we saw where a lot of our Christian confidence killers came from. When people have unbiblical expectations of their faith, then they are, wind up losing confidence, right? Because if someone told you, well, once you're a Christian, you'll never sin again, what do you got to do? Like I say, it's a, the heresies of uh, the heresies of many churches in this world that try to teach some sort of some or an, sort of another of sinless perfectionism cause believers to do again go down the same two roads. They either deceive themselves into thinking that they're not sinful and thus become horrible, self-righteous Pharisees, hateful unto God and others, or they become depressed, discouraged believers. I must not have believed hard enough. I must not have believed right. I must not have, because I'm still struggling with sin. I'm still growing at best. So unbiblical expectations, that that's exactly what the Christian life is meant to look like. Growth in Christ over time. Learning what it means to rely on him, to grow in relationship with him, is not a one-instant deal, one-stop shop. But unbiblical expectations are a confidence killer of the highest order, not understanding the growth plan. If we don't understand that we are meant to grow in grace by growing in the knowledge, the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ through the study of his word, through the application of that word of our lives, through faith, through keeping our eyes fixed, our trust and our focus fixed on Jesus Christ, we're being preoccupied with him, then we're going to try to do everything else we can. We're going to join an accountability buddy group, and you're going to all get together and confess your sins to each other, and that's going to make you, or be an attempt to make it feel better. But it doesn't. You don't conquer sin by, accounting, by confessing it to your friends. And so then you get out of the, off the accountability uh, group thing, and then you, you just go, well, you know, it's just going to be focusing on doing good works. I'm going to go out and share the gospel every day, and I'm going to be so, so busy doing good things that I won't even have time to sin. And then they find that they're, even in their service, doing it in an ungodly way because they're not connected. It's not an overflow of their love and their life with Christ, of their relationship with him. Not understanding the growth plan causes a great amount of insecurity or lack of confidence in the Christian life. Not living in confident understanding of your position, as we just talked, and walking according to the sin nature. Again, that's part of not understanding the growth plan. But when we choose to disregard the instructions of Romans 6.11, and we choose not to consider ourselves dead indeed unto sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, but rather alive to our sin, then of course we live a life of underconfidence because we're living counter to our new nature. Right? And our Heavenly Father's saying, this isn't you. This isn't what I redeemed you for. And then we looked at a very long list, and we took what probably should have been two studies, but instead I just kept you here late, and looked at all of these wonderful things. Actually, we didn't look at all of them. We just looked at a small subset about how every believer who's trusted in Jesus Christ is 100% in the eternal plan of God, 
is reconciled to God, is redeemed. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're related to God through propitiation. That's the satisfaction of God's righteousness. Our sins are removed. We're vitally joined to Christ. We're free from the law. We're a child of God. You're adopted. You're accepted. And on and on and on. These are statements that are made in the Bible, and you have to go to the Bible to find them. But they are absolutely stated as final facts that anyone who's trusted in Christ, these things are true of him, whether you feel like it or not, whether you happen to be acting like it or not in a given day. And that brings us confidence. So now as we center in on our daily condition, we have to ask, what are we meant to be doing? We saw that we're meant to be uh, fixated, as we said, on Christ. And when we take our gaze off of Christ, something happens. We, we fall down. We stop growing, right? So what's the answer? What do we need to do? We need to return our gaze to Christ. What's that? You, are, you, you come, might confess your sins. Now, we could argue whether you confess where you realize what you've done wrong after you return your gaze to Christ or before, but that's right. You recognize, wow, I was out of line. I blew it. Put my eyes back on Jesus, and what happens? He restores us. We begin walking by the Spirit again. Simple task. Be preoccupied with Christ. Be growing and be listening in his word. And you'll be confident that you're doing what you're meant to be doing, what God means you to be doing, whether you're going to work or you're going to school or you're going to, you know, about this job or that job or whatever it is you're doing. You're constantly meant to have your eyes uh, of faith fixed on Christ. And you'll grow and you'll walk. Then we saw, uh, we looked about, uh, looked at this concept of truthing in love, or he said that the ultimate expression in Ephesians 4 was speaking the truth in love is the way that it's got translated. We saw that in the Greek, and uh, the, that was actually truth as a verb, right? And because we don't have truth as a verb in English, um, our translators supplied the word speaking the truth. And that's true, but it's actually greater than that. It's living within the context of the, the full truth. You know, not just, not just truthful in what we say, but truthful in what we do, truthful and faithful and reliable in how we live. And finally, that that exists within uh, the quality of Christ's love. And so we saw Christian maturity. If we're going to look at what our picture of Christian maturity, of course, we look personally right to Jesus Christ. But if we were to think about that, we'd think it is completely living in, uh, in truth not in deception, and completely living within the sphere of Christ's perfect, selfless love. Then we realize that in order to live in confidence or live with confidence, that we have to understand God's will. And that's where this, um, this chart hopefully became helpful to you. We saw that God has a sovereign will, things that he's decreed that will not change no matter what. It doesn't matter what you do or what I do. Jesus Christ will come and return for his church and take us away. And no matter what you or I do, that plan, that decision for when that's going to happen is solely in the hands or in the decision-making or the will and the authority of the Father. There will be a seven-year tribulation through which God calls Israel back to himself. That's a part of God's sovereign will. Nothing we or anyone else will do is going to stop that. There will be a millennial reign of Christ, 100% absolutely. Other parts of God's plan that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would be revealed through the nation of Israel, right? It's part of God's sovereign will. He wasn't going to let Israel goof that up. They had their uh, moments of faithfulness and far more moments of rejecting him and walking in unfaithfulness, but God's sovereign will to bring forth the Messiah to save the world was never in question. He was going to do that. 
Then we have God's moral will, and we saw that that is more than just the morality that is God's do's and don't list, but also has to do with God's desire for every person, that he's not willing that any should perish, but he's willing that all will be saved. And we saw that while God's sovereign will cannot be broken, no one can subvert or change God's sovereign will, that God's moral will we could either live in keeping with or live out of keeping with. And so for every believer, or every unbeliever rather, that God's moral will for their life is that they would trust in Jesus. They can, they can uh, submit to that moral will and trust in Christ, or they can reject it and not trust in Christ. But that moral will is very important for us to understand because as believers, we need to understand what God wants for us to do. And when we understand that, much of what we've already studied about walking by means of the Spirit and so on, then we can move on to discerning and finding out what God's individual will for our life, which involves making wise choices according to what we know of Scripture, right? And then we'll be able to test and prove what the will of God is. So that's where we wound up. God's will is revealed in the Bible. So do you want to live with confidence? Know your Bible. You want to live with confidence? Know the character of God. When you know the character of God, you'll know what sorts of things to do in every situation. You might be stumped once or twice with a, is it this one or that one? Because they both seem morally and spiritually equivalent, and that's fine. Then you make your choice prayerfully and under good counsel, hopefully. Um, But we saw that God's will is revealed to us in the Word of God. And so in order to live with confidence, you must know the Word of God. It's no mystery at all that those uh, men and women in our body who live with the most confidence, grace, joy, and peace are also the ones with their nose stuck in this book so much over the years. And then in our final uh, study last week, we looked at getting our priorities from the book. And that was just kind of more of a practical time of study to remind ourselves that we can, as humans, be self-deceived and say, yeah, yeah, my top priority is God, absolutely, and yet not make Bible study a priority, not make his, uh, you know, coming to church a priority, not make um, our giving to him and all the other things. We can di- we cannot make those things a priority that are meant to be our priorities. So we let the word of God dictate our priorities. We're going to see that our relationship with him is uh, top wrong, if we like. Our families, our family commitments, our top rung, using our spiritual gifts and being involved with our church, our top rung type God-level priorities, or God's priorities, work and being productive and building up and doing, the, uh, doing something that is both constructive and productive to provide for your family is um, a part of God's will for everyone's life. And if we take those priorities from the book, then again, we're going to live with confidence. It doesn't mean that everything's going to go well all the time. Quite to the contrary, there'll be lots of hardships in this life. But we'll be able to say, Lord, I'm doing this in a response to your word by making a priority what you say is important, by prioritizing uh, my relationship with you, your glory first, the people with whom you've surrounded me second, uh, Father and and uh, your service in that way. So, three little points to close our confidence in Christ study, and we'll be done for the evening. One, God has given the believer everything that we need in Jesus Christ. Both uh, Paul in Ephesians and and, uh, Peter in 1 Peter 1.3 would say that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. It's already given to you in Jesus Christ. 
We just need to utilize those things which he has given us in Christ. We can live with confidence in any situation at any time because of what he has revealed to us in his wonderful word. That's the secret. There's going to be lots of situations that shake us to our core. There will be difficulties and there will certainly be challenges. There's no guarantee that things get easier or better as things go on. There is an absolute guarantee that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And that whatever he allows you to go through, he has provided for you to glorify him in. So you can live with absolute confidence that whatever happens, your destiny is secure. And that growing in grace will cause you to grow in confidence in Christ. So, it's been a fun study for me to, to go over, and I hope you've enjoyed it as well. I hope we've all, and we all continue to grow in confidence. And that last kind of confidence that is confident to share the love of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ with others, not just because we're told to, not just because we're rightly afraid of what might happen if they, or what will happen, rather, if they don't know Christ. But most importantly, because we're so confident in what he's done with us that we know that he could do the same thing for them. That every person needs this love and grace and life that's in Christ Jesus alone. Let's close our time in order prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. You've given us everything. You've given us a destiny. You've given us the ability to rightfully be confident in you. Oh, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for the great gift of this day, for your perfect word, for your Son, Jesus Christ, whom your word reveals, for your Holy Spirit that enables us and te to understand and teaches us your word, for your wonderful love, that fills our lives. Please, might we be a light unto you and all to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.